You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. My name is Josh Waite. My name is Josh Waite. I'm on the elder team here and have the privilege of preaching God's word this morning. Um, Before we get much further, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to you in Christ and through his victory on our behalf. In your kindness and in your mercy, Please be with us now as we open your word. Make us more like you. Please increase the depth and sincerity and the joy of our worship as we look to you. Bless us now, we pray. In your name, Father. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning we'll be in Psalm 41. And it's going to be important to start by noting the place of Psalm 41 in the book of Psalms as a whole. The book of Psalms is actually comprised of five smaller books. It may help to think of it as a five-volume set of ancient Hebrew hymns. And Psalm 41 is the last and final psalm within book one. And in fact, verse 13 of this psalm doesn't actually belong to Psalm 41 proper. It's a a doxology that closes all of book one. By the way, strike team, you can come on down. If you need a Bible, the strike team is going to come down. So the vast majority of psalms within book one are attributed to King David. And these psalms vary in many respects in terms of their length, style, tone, subject matter. There are many important differences, but there's also a unifying theme, a recurrent theme that we find again and again within book one. And that is the idea of conflict. If you've read the account of David's life in First and Second Samuel, this won't be surprising to you. Uh, David led a tumultuous life filled with grief and sorrow. He had many enemies, and as we'll see this morning, they were ruthless. So God had called David when he was a young boy, when he was a shepherd, he had called David um, and anointed him as king over his chosen people. And specifically, he called David to reign with justice, mercy, and righteousness in a world ruined by sin. So David's life is character. I'm told it's the the, uh, depth of my voice. (laughs) So I may have to speak in a high-pitched, squeaky voice to (laughs) avoid this. So... David is trying to establish a kingdom of justice, mercy, and righteousness in the context of a world ruined by sin. 
And so conflict unfolds again and again. In Psalm 41, David is surrounded by vicious enemies, but that's not unique for him. What's unique about Psalm 41 is that David is really sick. His death appears imminent. Imagine for a moment the sense of vulnerability, being extremely ill and surrounded by vicious enemies who want nothing more than to see you die. I think for a moment about the last time you were really sick. About a month ago, my family received a visit from the stomach flu, and it was intense. Uh, my wife, Kate, got sick first. I'm not blaming her, but <laughs> she did get sick first. Next up was my son, Rylan, then my youngest daughter, Willa. All the while, me and my oldest daughter, Harper, are just watching this freight train come toward us, <laughs> wondering who is going to be next. Sure enough, I went to bed one night feeling perfectly fine, and I woke up at 1 a.m. with problems, <laughs> multiple problems. I'm going to spare you every detail. <laughs> just know that whatever you imagine, it happened. <laughs> at about 5 a.m., my misery had reached a crescendo. I was laying on the bathroom floor, delirious, wondering why and how my wife and children are so much tougher than I am. Kate leans up in bed, and in the sweetest, softest tone, she says, Josh, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do for you? For some reason, in that moment, in my delirium, my response was, just don't look at me. <laughs> There's a, a walk of shame of sorts the next morning when I came down the steps and looked at Kate. Sorry. I'm not going to attempt to psychoanalyze myself from the pulpit. There's clearly material there. We know that the way we respond in moments of vulnerability, it reveals something about our hearts. And Psalm 41 is a treasure because we get to see King David in one of his better moments. We get to see how he responds in the midst of some profound vulnerability. And what we're going to see is that David responds by trusting in the triumph of God's covenant love. And that's really my main point for this morning. As we face bitter trials of every kind, as we navigate the sinister schemes of an enemy who is too much for us alone, we can trust in the triumph of God's covenant love. One last thing before beginning in earnest and reading our text. It's important to establish the right framework and to understand that Psalm 41 doesn't just appear out of thin air. Imagine for a moment that you're traveling by plane. You've got a layover, which is a bummer. But you go to the restaurant in the airport and you begin talking with a fellow traveler. As that conversation progresses, you will inevitably ask two questions. Where are you coming from and where are you going? 
And those are great questions to keep in mind as we open God's word and especially the Old Testament. And what we'll see this morning is that Psalm 41 is coming from God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's headed for its final fulfillment in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So keep that itinerary in mind as we read Psalm 41 and consider it together. Psalm 41, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I've sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is God's holy and perfect word. It cannot and will not fail. The first section of Psalm 41 is verses 1 through 3. And it begins with this remarkable exclamation. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And this baffled me, because you may have noticed that the poor are not mentioned again in the remainder of this text. The psalm is clearly about David and his illness, his enemies and their treachery, and the Lord and his faithfulness. But why begin by mentioning the poor? And who is this one who considers them and is blessed? Over time, I found that a right understanding of verse 1 is crucial for interpreting everything that follows. It's important to know that the Hebrew word translated here as poor is very often translated as weak, needy, haggard, and destitute. In other words, poor isn't strictly or even primarily about financial circumstances. It's it's about a social position of vulnerability. So let's briefly consider two other examples where this same Hebrew word is translated as weak. First from Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the, the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
In Psalm 82, the Lord pronounces his divine judgment on Israel's corrupt leaders. They're unjust, unmerciful, unrighteous. Under their leadership, the vulnerability of the weak increases and the wicked prosper. Another example from Psalm 82, or Psalm 72, rather. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So Psalm 72 presents us with the inverse situation. Israel's king is here commended for his justice, mercy, and righteousness. He executes a redemptive reign that rescues the weak from the hand of the wicked. So from these passages, we see that poor actually refers to the weak and the needy who are most vulnerable to the schemes of the wicked. And we also see that God calls Israel's kings to a redemptive reign that rescues the weak. So to bring this full circle, back to David, back to Psalm 41, when David begins by exclaiming, blessed is the one who considers the poor, he's beginning by affirming God's call upon his life as Israel's Old Testament redemptive king. Then in verses 2 and 3, David goes on to convey his confidence that God is going to care for him as he submits to that call. He's speaking of himself when he says, verse two, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. There's a certain danger here with verses one through three because we might be tempted to read this and say, Well, if I take care of the poor, God won't ever let anything bad happen to me. And this is where we have to remember that Psalm 41 doesn't appear out of thin air. It's coming from a specific place, and we can't just take it anywhere. It's coming from the specific covenant promises that God made to David and his descendants. David has been entrusted with a very specific role as Israel's Old Testament redemptive king. That's not you or me. David is confident that God will care for him as he submits to the particular call God has placed on his life. So that's verses one through three, and then we get to verse four, and the drama of this psalm begins. And in fact, verses four through 10 are devoted to a detailed description of just how bad David's situation is. In verse 4, David begins by pleading for God's grace, and he mentions some sin he's committed. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And Jake showed us last week that David clearly recognizes that the source of his troubles is both internal and external. His own private sin and the treachery of his enemies. But here in Psalm 41, the vast majority of his attention is on the wickedness, malice, and treachery of his enemies. And these are some bad guys. So here's the situation. Actually, first, an analogy. 
At my home, every Friday evening, we watch a movie with the kids. There's always popcorn and candy. It's a wonderful tradition. And it begins when we open the Disney or the Netflix app and we watch some trailers before selecting a movie for the night. And my kids are four, six, and nine. And as we're watching the trailers, they're assessing if the protagonist is likable, if the plot is compelling. They don't use those words, but... <laughs> they're also determining, and this is important, parents, you know, how bad is the bad guy? Four, six, and nine, there is a threshold of badness beyond which the answer is no way, not that movie. But sometimes Kate and I really want to watch a movie. <laughs> and we can reassure the kids. Because, you know, often the bad guy looks intimidating and imposing, but his schemes aren't actually that sinister. So we can say to the kids, he looks scary. He's not really that bad. In Psalm 41, King David has the opposite and the far greater problem. Enemies who appear harmless, and yet they are sinister. So here's the situation. David is on his sickbed. Meanwhile, his enemies are absolutely relishing the thought of his demise. We've got a scene that belongs in a mafia movie. Every once in a while, one of these enemies will actually visit David under pretense of having some news to report. But there's nothing newsworthy, nothing worth telling. The real purpose of their visit is to witness the king's misery firsthand, to gather intel about his deteriorating condition. When the visitor leaves, he shares the report with his conspirators and David's enemies together rejoice as they contemplate the very worst for him. It's already a bad situation, and then to make matters far worse, we learn that one of David's dear friends has joined forces with his enemies. Verse 9, even my close friend who ate my bread, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. His enemy's schemes are clearly an offense. The betrayal of a friend is a source of deep sorrow. In Psalm 55, David vividly describes the unique heartache of betrayal. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Have you ever had a week or a month or a year it started off bad, got worse, and then it got worse or still. Before long, you are hanging on for dear life, wondering, astonished, that things could get so bad. 
He's convicted by sin. He's sick as a dog. He's surrounded by enemies and betrayed by a beloved friend. David is low. Before we move on to the hopeful conclusion of this psalm, it's important that we recognize exactly what his enemies are after. Verse 5 in particular, it reveals their ambitions. My enemies say of me in mouths, when will he die and his name perish? These enemies are not simply hoping for David's death. They're seeking the destruction of his name, his lineage, and the covenant promises he received from God. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a solemn covenant with David. He anoints him to reign over his people, and then he gives him two specific promises. This is so important. This is where Psalm 41 is coming from, so to speak. First, God promises a perpetual dynasty. David and his descendants will reign forever over God's kingdom of justice, mercy, and righteousness. That's promise one, perpetual dynasty. Second, he promises a permanent dwelling place. David's son will build a temple for God and God will dwell among his chosen people forever. Perpetual dynasty and permanent dwelling place. And this is good news, by the way, if you're a king. God says you and your descendants are going to reign forever and the living God will be with you and dwell among you as you do so. The power and glory of David's perpetual dynasty is that it's animated by the special presence or indwelling of God himself. This is the covenant context for Psalm 41. And now we can fully appreciate exactly what David's enemies are after. Not simply his death, but the destruction of his name, lineage, and the covenant promises. They're not merely opposing a human king. They're opposing God's redemptive plan to establish his kingdom through David. They're opposing the redemptive reign of God himself. My son, Rylan, uh, went through a phase where he was terrified to be left alone, even for a moment. And I remember one day, Rye and I were about to leave to run some errands. We were in the truck, backing out of the driveway, and I remembered that I left my wallet in the house, upstairs. I knew exactly where it was. So I put the truck in park, and I told Rye, I left my wallet upstairs, I'm gonna go get it, and I will come right back. It's just gonna be, it'll be less than one minute. Rye looked at me like this was the worst plan in the history of humanity. <laughs> so I reassured him, I promise I'll be right back less than a minute. So I left the truck, went in the house, went upstairs, grabbed the wallet, came back downstairs, hopped back in the truck, and I turned around and looked at Rye, who said, Dad, I was so scared. But I just kept saying, Dad promised less than a minute. Dad promised less than a minute. I said it all the way till you came back. 
the covenant promises that David gets from God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 are much like that. Throughout David's life, not just in Psalm 41, throughout his life, he reassures himself by repeating God's promises. So in verse 11, the wonderful conclusion to this psalm, we see David repeat God's covenant promises and trust in the triumph of God's covenant love. Verse 11, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. First look closely at verse 11. Why will David's enemies not shout in triumph over him? Not simply because God is obligated to him. Not merely because God made a couple promises and now he's on the hook and he can't change his mind. Because God delights in his anointed king. And David closes Psalm 41 by invoking God's own covenant language from 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, you have set me in your presence forever perpetual dynasty and permanent dwelling place. David trusts in the triumph of God's covenant love over all the schemes of his enemies. What's so amazing about Psalm 41 is that it's not really about David at all. It's about God's unstoppable redemptive plan to establish a permanent kingdom where justice, mercy, and righteousness prevail. It's about the triumph of God's redemptive reign, and it finds perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the son of David. But consider for a moment how this psalm is headed straight for the cross and the tomb. Consider how it's fulfilled by Christ, who came to us proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, who came for the explicit purpose of rescuing weak and haggard sinners who suffer in a wicked world ruined by sin, who endured the malicious schemes of wicked men and Satan himself, who suffered the betrayal of a dear friend who ate his bread, who satisfied the perfect justice and mercy of God by offering his body as a sacrifice for our sins, who, when all seemed lost, when he wasn't merely lying on his sickbed, but he was lying dead in Joseph's tomb, rose in triumph over death, and who sits now and forever in the presence of God, where he reigns with him. Psalm 41 is coming from God's covenant with David, and it's headed straight for the cross and the tomb. It's about the triumph of God's covenant love and the triumph of God's covenant love reaches its full crescendo in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ which mutes the mouths of all who oppose God's redemptive plan, which mutes the mouths of all who would shout in victory over the redeemed. David sang this sickbed song of confidence as he looked forward with prophetic vision to Christ 
And now we have the privilege of singing the same sickbed song of confidence as we look backward in faithful remembrance towards Christ. The covenant love of God triumphs. I want to close with three practical questions that I think are worth consideration in light of Psalm 41 and what I've shared. These will be good topics to discuss during CG this week. First, a sobering reality of the Christian life, and it's one we don't talk about nearly often enough, is that we do, in fact, have a wicked enemy whose schemes are sinister. The wickedness and treachery of David's enemies is but a shadow of the malice and cunning of Satan. And the testimony of Scripture reveals that Satan deploys many strategies against us. He seeks to tempt us with sin, to seduce us with prosperity, to frighten us through persecution, to weaken us through illness, to break us with grief, to shame us through accusation, and to deceive us with lies. The list is long. There are many strategies and really only one goal. Satan's goal is to disrupt our confidence in the love of God in Christ. Vast wealth or financial ruin, debilitating shame or blinding arrogance, terrifying persecution or aimless comfort makes no difference to Satan so long as he can diminish and destroy your trust in the triumph of God's covenant love for you. So, a question. What sinister schemes are evident in your life? I know it's a disquieting question. Another way to put it is this. What diminishes your trust in the triumph of God's love for you? Wherever that confidence is diminished, you can be sure that the schemes of Satan are close at hand. Consider that together this week. Second, David reassures himself in verse 11 that his enemies will not triumph because God delights in him. I think that when we talk about covenant, sometimes we imagine a very formal, even a cold oath, a solemn promise that God is bound to keep. My youngest daughter, Willa, recently learned about pinky promises. That's a big deal for a four-year-old. It's a very solemn ritual for a four-year-old child. Willa makes me pinky promise all the time now to save her spot, to not take a bite of her sandwich when she leaves the table. (laughs) You can pinky promise for anything, I've learned. And whenever Willa makes me pinky promise, she gives me a look. (laughs) And it is a look that clearly conveys, Dad, no matter how much you come to regret it, no matter how much you come to hate yourself for it, you are bound to me forever (laughs) through this pledge hereby made with your pinky. (laughs) Christians, God does not begrudgingly put up with you 
and save you because you met the criteria of faith in his son and now he's got no choice in the matter. In the high priestly prayer, which we read earlier this morning, Jesus is approaching the victory line of his death and resurrection. And in that prayer, he makes it clear. By faith, by grace, through faith in his name, we are unified with him in a perfect unity. That we're full participants in the same glorious delight which the Father has for his Son. When Jesus rises from the baptismal waters and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and the Father's voice proclaims, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, that's for you in Christ and not an ounce less. It is a covenant of love and delight. How do you see God's covenant to save you? Finally, We'll close by not forgetting that Psalm 41 was sung during Israel's corporate public worship. This is not from David's private journaling. He's not in heaven blushing because some scholar published this without his consent. This was addressed to the choir master because it's meant for the church hall. Because the the triumph of God's covenant love is worth proclaiming. Let's briefly consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is from the New Living Translation, which I think uh, gives a more vivid picture. Paul says, But thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. This fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, a life-giving perfume. Christ is triumphant, and we walk in his procession. Yes, there are bitter trials and sinister schemes to navigate. Yes, the road is narrow and hard, but make no mistake, it's a victory march that we're on together. As we journey home and as we face hardships of every shape and size, we get to sing this sickbed song of confidence. Its fragrant melody rises to heaven and pleases the Father. Its lyrics proclaim the triumph of God's covenant love. Where do you have an opportunity to sing the sickbed song of confidence? To proclaim the triumph of God's covenant love. As you sing it, you will reassure yourself. You'll encourage your brothers and sisters. And you'll witness to the watching world. I love you all, Jesus loves you more, and he's triumphant. Let's pray.